You're listening tonight on RNZ National. Colin Peacock is in the Wellington studio for Midweek Media Watch. G'day, Colin. Hi, how are you doing? I'm Anyone? great. I'm great, thank you. Did you develop a bit of a London twang when you were working for the Beeb over there? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> knew you were going to do that. You were having a go? Uh, no, I did. I actually did because friends used to, I was there so long, people used to ring me up occasionally and speak to me and yeah. and tell me that. And I was saying, I don't know what you're talking about. Possibly not quite in that uh, accent. But yeah, no, I, I did that. But I think I also do did what Eric Dyer did when going around yeah. Europe. And you, I think you do it automatically. You adopt this kind of cadence as if you're being respectful to people and speaking in a sort of cadence they will find familiar I don't know but I think yeah it probably sounds ridiculous to them when they speak English perfectly well well exactly and you wouldn't want to be you know parlez-vouing le français with a brummy sort of twang would you yeah you know, I do you, think there was do you remember there was a footballer Owen Hargreaves who played yeah. for England he was Canadian born I think but raised in Germany yeah and English football fans never took to him because they called him the German that's uh, right he they a, did too he had a funny kind of Atlantic German sort of accent They're and they deeply. didn't like it but he was a brilliant player but uh, it's a bit weird so I feel sorry for a footballer who's an England international now in Germany getting <laughs> criticised for the way he speaks English like I don't think you can win yeah people being mean to famous people online perish the thought mm. um, alright anyway let's talk media and uh, well RNZ National is in your sights today some big changes Colin yeah, that's right, including uh, this programme we're listening to right now, Indeed. Nights, uh, that's going to change a little bit. So from the 26th of February, uh, Checkpoint is going to move. It's currently 5pm to 6.30. They're going to move it uh, forward. Um, so 4 to 6pm, so it becomes two hours longer, as it used to be, actually, yeah. uh, back in the day, but, but it was 5 to 7 back then. And that will, I think, enable it to do more news, probably update a few stories a bit better. So following that from 6 to 8, it's going to be Wallace Chapman, because obviously that checkpoint 4 to 6 displaces the panel. Uh, so the panel will now be a part of the 6 to 8 show between 6 and 7. And the second hour of Wallace's show will feature some of the recorded uh, programs, things like The Detail, which is daily, Focus on Politics uh, on Fridays, Mata, uh, other programs like that will be part of Wallace's hour. Um, so the the press release says, the statement says, RNZ, uh, well, this will allow the panel to discuss issues raised and reported and developed during the longer checkpoint mm-hmm. as opposed to kind of before it. Uh, so that's part of the thinking. But it means, yes, nights starts uh, an hour later, eight till midnight, but still plenty of you on the year. Yeah, four hours feels pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Five hours is a long time, Colin. Um, and alongside the schedule change, Checkpoint is also rolling back its 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 video aspect. Is that mm. right? Yeah, that's that's right. So it's going to be radio only, which is interesting because you know when they developed the program as a, a video operation as well, it was when John Campbell came on board a few years back, um, and uh, Pip Keen, uh, who formerly worked with him at TV Three, uh, was part of part of the team there. So they had this. Um, big effort to produce video and I guess if you go back that time do you remember in 2017 the Labour government came in and they wanted RNZ to be more multimedia they had a RNZ policy Plus. RNZ yeah. Plus indeed yeah. was, Claire uh, Curran's baby that one wasn't yeah, it yeah but she was a bit vague is this a new yeah. TV channel people are asking or just something a bit expanded online they weren't really sure but the push then was that you know broadcasters part of the digital transition should be capable of streaming doing video productions you know and also specials like elections and all of that but Throughout all the time that Checkpoint has been, um, you know, a video streamed production, the viewership of it wasn't huge. I don't know about the, um, you know, the Channel 50, but you could see when it was up on YouTube, the streams weren't garnering huge amounts of views. And I can't say I saw people on buses 
very much, you know, streaming it on their phones. But but I honestly don't know what what the take up was like. But it did create a lot of production effort. You know, t- visual production is always more complicated than audio. So that's that's part of the change. So Checkpoint will definitely change in nature. But RNZ did say in their statement they're still committed to what they call video storytelling and having um, streaming and studio capability for video productions. And they'll still be doing specials and so on. It is a difficult sort of medium to break into, isn't it? That, that television medial, um, it's it's very expensive, the overhead costs and, and the technical knowledge that's required to sustain a TV operation. Um, uh, it, it's it's quite specific that they really are big operations. Those big TV channels, aren't they? Yeah, and sometimes I mean it does. It is slightly it can be an off-putting experience if you can't get warm bodies, as they used to call it, um, on the screen. So when you're having to interview someone you know, over a phone line and you have that still with the bouncing waveform on it and they're cutting back to the presenter in the studio staring directly at you on a TV screen. You know, sometimes that isn't such a great experience. When put up against people might be watching that and switch over to television, uh, the likes of, you know, TVNZ1 News or News Hub at 6 or something, and obviously the production was um, more sophisticated. So I guess that's the change uh, they've done. And that, in some ways, maybe it's independent of RNZ's effort or anything Checkpoint did or didn't do. Just that video streaming habit maybe is one that's um, just moving on a little bit now. Maybe people are less inclined to do it. You know, of course, TikTok, short videos taking off among one demographic, Mm. even vodcasts and, you know, Joe Rogan, all that stuff. Some people watch, you know, an hour and a half of a few pot-bellied guys talking around um, a table with a few microphones. You know, you wouldn't have predicted that back when everyone was talking about the pivot to video, that people would sit there and watch that in vision. (laughs) Hours on end. Joe Rogan podcast. four hours long. Yeah, tastes... Have have different yeah. tough one for the panel though I think um, when I think about it because they'll be on six to seven where I think a lot of the audience might also be inclined to still be that live six pm news watching mm-hmm. audience but we'll see we'll see we'll see and I mean when you when you take a step back from this and look at the scheduling of, of various radio stations around the country does do this make RNZ more like other radio stations and media outlets or or, or less so. Uh, a bit of both, I think, but a bit more if if you take the the sort of commercial leading uh, audience grabbing station uh, in talk radio, which is News Talk ZB. Their drive show for a long time has been four through to seven, um, so they've started earlier. Uh, RNZ's kind of matching that in a sense. They had a kind of business themed hour from six to seven, which is yeah how they scheduled that content. But still, you know, even on television, if you think about it, there's still that quite ingrained. 6 p.m. full news hour and then half an hour of current affairs because TV3 is replacing the project with something new that hasn't quite started yet. Mm-hmm. So even the, the, the free-to-air television companies are still sequestering uh, that hour and a half for news and current affairs, which I don't think is true in other countries. I don't think many stretch it out over um, over that period of time. So that's an enduring trend too. So mm-hmm. yeah, in occupying that whole suite, I guess, from four right through to eight with news-themed content. Of course, you know, when you're on as well, Emil, you're not, you're not exactly not news-adjacent when things are going on. So mm-hmm. uh, maybe it's more of a transition through, through the evening, but trying to catch uh, everything. Because as RNZ says, working from home, COVID disruption, that's changed the nature of mm. prime time, uh, spread it out a bit um, in terms of, you know, the commute and all those things that used to more rigidly define those slots. You know, now those are a bit more blurred. Yeah. Uh, sticking with RNZ and uh, a news bulletin's prompted some complaints. The 10 a.m. news bulletin was on Sunday. It was about Al Gillespie, who is a University of Waikato law professor and his interpretation of 
the ruling by the International Court of Justice on South Africa's case accusing Israel of genocide. We've got some audio of that here. A law professor says the ruling by the International Court of Justice that found Israel not guilty of genocide still holds the country accountable for civilian deaths. The International Court of Justice has issued a provisional order for Israel to take all necessary steps to prevent acts of genocide in Gaza, but it did not demand an immediate ceasefire. University of Waikato law professor Al Gillespie says the ruling will bring more humanitarian aid to the conflict zone. Even if a genocide has not been found, international humanitarian law still applies that, that civilians have access to the necessities of life. And this tap has been turned on and off by Israel in its conflict so far. And so you, you will see much more humanitarian assistance going in. So, Colin, why were uh, well, why did this cause some consternation? Well, the problematic words were uh, that it wasn't quite correct to say at the start before Al Gillespie's comments there that the ruling by the International Court of Justice found Israel not guilty of genocide. Any verdict on that case brought by South Africa would still be months or even years away. It's mm. an incomplete process, but. When Al Gillespie said there, um, he said, you know, a genocide has not been found. You know, he said that in the, the first words of that bit of audio there. That's also correct uh, in, in and of itself. So, And he wasn't the only person to say that the ICJ didn't call for an immediate ceasefire and that that was a, a victory of, ki- of sorts of the ruling for Israel. Mm. So I can see how RNZ's... Um, you know, not guilty of genocide wording came from that. And it is hard to sum up in advance of the audio of Professor Gillespie uh, what the ICJ ruling did and didn't call for and the scope of it. So I can see how it happened. Um, but yeah, to, to have said in advance of that that Israel was found not guilty of mm. genocide, that that is not correct. Yeah, was found not guilty versus was not found guilty Um uh, yeah, w- yep. w- words, I suppose, but words matter, as, as, as we constantly told. And I suppose for RNZ in particular, um, this is maybe not a great look considering um, RNZ also got into a bit of hot water for the reporting of, um, of, of another big armed conflict last year, the R- Russia editing scandal. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, because that too is an emotional issue where a mistake will be seen as you know pro one side or, or the other, um, and even it's not just of an error, but of, of, a, of a bias, whether conscious or not. Um, also, the the Russia editing scandal, so-called, last year, um, did reveal that RNZ had a bit of a, a blind spot with, with world news. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, this here was a single error, that 10 p.m., uh, 10 a.m. bulletin um, on Sunday. The, that form of words did actually run overnight in shorter forms of the bulletin as well, just a couple of times late at night, probably wasn't heard by that many people, but it did run more than once. But it was still, you know, one single error, not the sort of systematic thing that the the inappropriate editing that was discovered last year. But also RNZ did run on its site things like um, Paul Adams, BBC's diplomatic correspondent with a uh, for the BBC, an assessment in writing uh, of the ruling, which did make you know the point that the situation was at risk of deteriorating further, and the court would deliver its final verdict on genocide, a process that could take years. That's on the RNZ site there for people who were um, interested, and it does say you know that Israel has to do more to prevent and publish, uh, punish rather, public incitement of genocide and so on. So there is more clarity if you were interested, and in RNZ was your source. Um, there was other material which kind of leavened the the uh, the error in that bulletin. Hmm. And, you know, I suppose you're going to make the mistake and a mistake is a mistake, but what you do after that mistake is a big thing as well. And uh, to RNZ's credit, it did 
uh, acknowledge and correct that bulletin uh, later on that day. Here is a little slice of audio from that. Earlier today, RNZ said Israel had been found not guilty of genocide. However, the court did not make a specific ruling on whether genocide had occurred, but it did say there was a plausible case under the 1948 Genocide Convention. Yeah, that statement actually, by the way, Emil, is also on uh, a page on the RNZ site, the Corrections and Clarifications page online. Though when I went looking for that, I put in corrections and got the tag about all the stories about failings at the Department of Corrections and problems with right. our prisons. So, uh, but it certainly is there. So um, yeah, RNZ certainly did uh, acknowledge it and that probably is one that won't be repeated. So what's the moral of the story here? I just guess you know, be extra careful summarising you know, an international judicial body ruling on a story which you know, is the number one controversial world news issue of the day mm-hmm. because you know, as we know, many people will construe errors as, and just loose language as you know, evidence of, of bias or, or something like that. So yeah, best to just be very, very careful with the wording. Mm-hmm. All right, let's uh, talk about something else. And uh, I chose to Hayden about this, well, about MPs last week. We were focusing on um, the resignation of Golrez Garaman. And, of course, you mentioned that on Media Watch last weekend. And you also mentioned another MP who's due in court soon, Kitty Allen. And Kitty Allen's been giving some interviews about her resignation and also about her mental health becoming the subject of news stories in much the same way that was the case uh, for Golrez Garaman. Yeah, and and that actually came out in these uh, Kitty Allen interviews that was with The Herald. She did one and with TVNZ Breakfast. They came out on Friday. And in those, she revealed that, yeah, she'd been talking to um, Golrez Garaman. And uh, on TVNZ Breakfast show, it was Jenny May Clarkson, one of the co-hosts of that program. Uh, she talked to Alan, you know, in quite blunt terms, and, and it was quite emotional, a lot of tears in the interview. Um, Kerry Allen even talked about she planned to take her own life the night that she crashed the car, so it was a, it was a hard watch. watch. Um, and... You know, in both in that Herald interview as well, um, you know, that was quite emotional. That went up initially as text on Friday on the Herald site, but then they later published a full video of that sort of sit-down encounter. It was Claire Trevet, the Herald's political editor, and Kerry Allen. And then TVNZ, um, I think on the Saturday, released a full version. They played about 15 minutes on the breakfast show on the Friday, but then the full sit-down interview with Jenny May Clarkson was uh, almost a full hour long. Mm. Was there anything, um, especially enlightening or, or new in the fuller versions of those interviews? Well, yeah, there was. So um, there's a lot more about her state of mind and so on, the questions and, and the pressure that she felt leading up to that night in July. Also, she spoke about her other health problems, which are also on the record, and that's part of the, the context of the um, the situation she found herself in. But um, Jenny May Clarkson also pressed her about how she returned from, do you remember there was a spell of kind of what she, I think, disputed, I think even the Chris Hipkins, her party leader, called it mental health leave, and she kind of disputed that. Mm. And then she returned and announced um, tough ram raid legislation, uh, which would uh, introduce more responsibility to kids of, I think, 12, 13 years of age and stuff like that. She said this was a, a fundamental misalignment, as mm. what she told Jenny May Clarkson of TVNZ, with yeah, her I think own values. Yeah, we, 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 I think we have a clip of that here. Let's play that. That gave the state greater powers to... Um, to bring younger people within the justice system. Who are those younger people? They're young brown kids. The absolute antithesis of the reason I went into politics. You talk about you had a choice at that time. You took one pathway. When you reflect now, 
would you make a different decision? Absolutely, and I should have, you know. Gee, and you can hear Jenny May's voice quaking with emotion there. I mean, that's that's a big... That's a big story, isn't it? Well, I would have thought so. I think that's the angle you could have taken. That, um, well, uh, I mean, it was a personal interview. It was about her, indeed. But you know, at the time, that was a big deal. You know, she's basically saying that law is unjust, um, knee jerk, um, and that she should have quit on principle because Jenny May Clarkson pushed her and said, you know, should you have quit at that time? Um, and she also claimed she she went back to try and she said, give it a nudge, Kitty Allen, like try and persuade maybe her her cabinet colleagues not to pursue this. I don't know, but they didn't go into great detail about it. It's a shame, but that part didn't air um, on The Breakfast Show. It's only in that longer version. And for example, TVNZ Staccardi uh, ran a story about the interview, just a short one, and that was all angled on, you know, Kitty Yellen opening up about shame and guilt. But that, for a an audience for a Māori news programme would have been much more interesting, I think, to have a story about that internal conflict over this law change that Kitty Allen herself is now saying would have criminalised more young Māori and she couldn't support it even though she was a cabinet minister. So, so what's your read? As, do, do you feel that that interview was too sympathetic or focused more on the human and emotional side when there was a, a bona fide news story there as well? I suppose, you know, Kitty Allen's Kitty Allen speaking out about... These these things and these emotions and these feelings is in and of itself a new story too, though, right? Yeah, and with the Gold Rose Garaman yeah. mental health situation also being part of the context, of locals there, different people, different parties, mm. and all of that. But yeah, I think so. I think there were parts that that. Um, but but there's also like for example, Jenny May Clarkson in the TVNZ one didn't ask questions of Kitty Allen about. Um, those on the cyclone hit East Coast, you know, who who were let down not just by her resigning, but by other ministers, three ministers in that part of the world that all defected or left the government in different circumstances. It did come up in the Herald interview. Um, Claire Trevette uh, asked about it, even pressed her on it. And in fact, Kitty Lyon volunteered that she'd let people down that. And in fact, um, when she said in the interview with Jenny May Clarkson about, I felt I let people down, she climbed in and said, you know, you don't have to feel that way, don't you? So mm. I don't know. But again, you know, these are two Māori women um, of roughly the same age that have some shared experience that was part of it. She probably drew things out in that interview, Jenny May Clarkson, that, you know, maybe you don't get, you know, in a more um, traditional news interview with, you know, the political editor of the Herald or something Mm. like that. Mm. Now, um, to something completely different, and you wanted to take me to task for something that I tweeted over the holidays, (laughs) and I say this with a downwards intonation because I'm worried about where this is going, Colin. No, no. Don't be concerned. No, no, no. Not at all. Not at all. No, this is not to take you to task. I'm, okay, I'm, good. I'm here to help you, Emil. But you tweeted, uh, you, you'd run a little poll um, asking the question, do pub games, snooker, darts, pool, chess count as sports? And I think you got a, a narrow majority saying uh, yes. Yeah. Um, but I remember this came up when I worked at the BBC's News and Sport Network, Five Live in the UK, mm-hmm. and there was a, a heated argument about this. And the definition they came up with um, was to qualify as a sport, it has to be something that you have to take the cigarette out of your mouth to do. <laughs> so technically, I mean, this is a tricky one because like darts, you could do darts. That would make darts not a sport, but it would make snooker a sport, I think. Well, you, but I mean, maybe you can't have a cigarette ash over the table. That's probably against the rules. I don't know. But um, we were thinking equestrian was a tough one because technically you could smoke and do that slow dressage stuff and maybe Mark Todd even did back in the day. Mate, if you're determined enough, you can smoke while you play pretty much any sport. Archery, Uh, Maybe not swimming. 
Yeah. You know. But this is falling down now the more I think about well, it. Well, yeah, I mean I'm thinking, you know, Shane Shane Keith Warren, the mighty Shane Keith Warren, he could have he could have had a Dunhill puffing away underneath that helmet when he's standing at the crease. Um rugby would probably be quite difficult. Um, cycling, track cycling. Yeah, cycling. <laughs> Although I have to say, um I do have a photo on my Facebook page of the Tour de France back in the day and um and many of the cyclists on their old road bikes uh, were actually smoking cigarettes as they biked. And one of the cyclists, in fact, is lighting another cigarette. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, second with sport, a couple of minutes left. And um, Jacinda Ardern has been compared to Liverpool FC's retiring manager, Jurgen Klopp. Yeah, I thought this would make you laugh. Like, I was on a BBC program in the weekend, one mm. I do occasionally just as a guest. And uh, they ran an item about the Liverpool FC manager saying, I'm going to leave at the end of the season, which is kind of a business story. It was mainly a business show mm. as well. So, but, um, you know, so they asked me the question um, after they got on a business management specialist, uh, a guy called Dr. Anthony Klotz, and it was him that brought up this comparison with um, Jacinda Ardern. And we have the audio here, lovely. Both Jacinda and him are in positions where you, you can't really take a month off or take a day off. For a lot of workers, when they sense they don't have gas in the tank, you know, you can slow down in your job a little bit, take a vacation, uh, do different sorts of things. These are very high level, high pressure, demanding jobs. And at the same time, you heard in his message and in Jacinda's that they have things that they want to do in their life other than their current position. Right, so Jacinda and Jurgen Klopp, peas peas in a pond. No, no, absolutely <laughs> wrong. I told them no, no, no comparison. You know, Jurgen Klopp will come back to football. Jacinda Ardern won't come back to politics. I'm positive of it. And yeah, better comparison might be, you know, Razor Robertson being announced as All Black manager while there's still one in place trying to win the World Cup. It's a bit of a reverse Klopp situation. But no, sport and politics should not meet, especially when it's. Uh, Jurgen Klopp and Jacinda Ardern. Well, Bill Shankly would say to you, Colin. Uh, you know, some people believe football is a matter of life and death. I'm very disappointed with their attitude. I can assure you, it's much, much more, important much more than important. Yes, <laughs> it's a famous one, isn't it? So yeah, maybe you're wrong. Okay, and that's a former Liverpool manager too. Yes, indeed. Colin Peacock, thank you very much.